Lots of places can handle crowds. Lots of beaches can be crowded and still completely function well. Cities can be crowded and function well. When the place can no longer function because of too many tourists in one place, that is what's considered over-tourism. Welcome to a new episode of Most Memorable Journeys. My guest today is a fascinating lady that I discovered on a flight, but I didn't discover the lady, I discovered a movie. I was uh, flying from uh, Dubai back to Cyprus and I watched this movie called The Last Tourist. And I was up, I really, I thought I, could, I was going to watch it again because I thought, wow, I think everybody in the world should watch this movie. Now, when we see these things and when I wish sometimes to have one of those people as a guest on my podcast, it's not always that easy or it doesn't always work because some people don't reply when I ask, some people are difficult. But Rachel Dots is very was very helpful. She got back to me and um, I will be eternally grateful that she is my guest today. She is a director of sustaining tourism. She's a professor at the Tor Toronto Metropolitan University and she's many, many, many more things. I will post the website, her website in the show notes and then you can see all the other stuff that she does. There are so many papers that she's written, many speeches that she's had. She's traveled to over um, 80 countries, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Welcome to Most Memorable Journeys, Rachel Dots. Thank you for having me. Um, I know that you had to get up early for me. I appreciate it. You are in, you're like, I don't know, seven hours away from me or nine, but um, you're here. So, um, Rachel, how did you start traveling? When were you on a plane for the first time in your life? The first time I can remember, I think I was four, but it could have been earlier. My parents are British. And so we would spend our summers in Canada Every But every second summer, we would go back and see the relatives. But my first big trip, I think, that I really, truly remember, I was six. I don't think kids have met really true memories before the age of five. And we went to Venezuela, actually. Was that a holiday? Venezuela? Is not exactly no, my father was working and decided that it would be good for us to experience different cultures. As his motto was, um, you should always learn some a few words of the local language and remember that that you are guests in someone else's place, which has stuck with me quite quite a lot through those years. That's very true. I did a podcast interview with our Deputy Minister of Tourism and he he said something really beautiful. Beautiful. He said, these people come to visit us. They, they, they could have chosen any place in the world, but they came here. So we must treat them as guests, but you are looking at it from a different side. You are a guest. So it, it goes in the direction of sustainable tourism already, doesn't it? I think so. I think we have a responsibility to respect the places that we visit because we are guests. We're not the residents. We don't, you know, we're there for a short or a limited portion of time. And we should make sure that we respect where we are, respect the people who are there and respect the environment that we're visiting. If we don't, it might not be there for the next person. That's very true. But I think I also believe that we are guests on this planet. Yes, very true as well. If we had that mentality uh, we do really well. It reminds me of a podcast I listened to actually a long time ago. It was about a place north of Toronto called uh, somewhere north there. I can't remember Sudbury. That's it. And uh, the podcast, uh, it was a place that used to be very much a coal place and and they were mining. It's where they uh, did a lot of NASA training because it looks for the landscape is very much similar to the moon. And one of these podcasts was talking about the environmental re rehabilitation of the area um, because everything smelled like sulfur. 
And the one line that stuck to me the most is he said, if carbon emissions, if CO2 smelled like sulfur, we would not have the issue of climate change that we have today. I thought that is so, so very, very true. It's because it is an odorless gas. Everybody ignores it. That is so, so true. Right. That is so true. Until we actually get to the point where we do notice it, you know, in big cities, when I, I was shocked once I saw this picture of, I think it was in Mexico City, and there were these little kids who had actually, you know, like black noses because of the of the emission that they were smelling all day. It's, it's, it's um, there. It's a lot. But let's get back to you. And so you were, you went to Venezuela. How did you become a traveler? Because you are a traveler. Did you, did you choose to travel or was it your, your profession that um, brought you on trips? No, I always said, as I'm sure so many people do, one day I'm going to figure out a way to travel and get someone else to pay for it. Uh, but I, you know, I've been, I traveled a lot with my parents when I was young. They they were really great to me. They thought that you um, have a great education. And somebody else said this to me too, that kids learn as much between the ears, uh, between the poles as they do between the ears, which I think is very true. So I was quite lucky. I went, I traveled a lot with my parents when I was, when I was younger Um we weren't a particularly well-off family, so we a lot of times went and stayed with family. But my uncle had been living in Venezuela at, this, at the time, and my father had gone for work, so it was an affordable way to go. And uh, yeah, we went we went to all over the place. And then I think I then went to Mexico with my friends when I was a, a late teenager. And then I realized that I wanted to go backpacking. And I, you know, picked up and I booted around Europe when I was 18, 19. And I think once you start the bug, it's it's like catching a bug. It's it's amazing. You just can't get rid of it. And the more you travel, the more you want to travel. And the more places you see, the more places you want to see. I think I was probably very similar to a lot of other people when I was younger that I, I did destinations. I was like, oh, I've been there. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, you know, all these years later, I realized I haven't been, I haven't mm -hmm. done anything. I may have been to many places, but I could go back. I've probably been back to France about a hundred times. And each time I find something amazing when I go back. And uh, that I realized you never really truly know a destination unless you live there. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, we always, you know, like when I talk to people, there are these country counters, you know, the one who just go to a place for two or three days. And then they say that they've been to every country in the world. You haven't been to every country in the world if you've just been there for a day or two. That doesn't, in my in my books, that doesn't count. But of course, that's for Instagram and for social media. It's more of a... You're right. You're right. And that's why I, I, I stopped counting after yeah. a while. Yeah, um, but you are absolutely right. It is um, because I had the same thing. I wanted to travel for free. I wanted somebody else to pay. I became a tour guide. Of course, being a tour guide gives you the opportunity to live in a country in my in my young years because we used to stay for five, six months at the destination and um, really, you know, live the life. We had to find an apartment and we had to car and we had to just, uh, you know, get a work permit. In the old days, there were no... There was no EU. So even as a Swiss citizen, you had to get a work permit everywhere. So um, things were different. Do you remember traveling and, and uh, doing all these things without a cell phone? Oh, I definitely did. I mean, I don't really want to age myself, but um, my daughter was asking me for a cell phone the other day and and I, I said flat out no. And then I sat down and I said, honestly, sweets, I, I have no idea. I didn't get a, I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 27. I didn't even have email until I was 23. I have absolutely no knowledge and understanding of how to navigate the cell phone world for a small person. How about we figure it out together? But I actually, I have to say I'm one of those people. I love my cell phone. I think I probably spend far too much time on it. You can do everything on a phone, but I miss 
being without it. And a lot of times my favorite place is I go to my cabin and my rule is that you turn off all technology and I am completely off grid because I feel we're too connected. Um, I just want to immerse myself and, and learn. I don't want to have to Google everything that I'm doing. I, I actually hate the new way of planning everything. I used to just arrive in a destination and figure it out when I got there. And that sort of fear, euphoria, freedom of not quite sure where you're going to stay and what you're going to do and discover it is so, uh, yeah, it's the most amazing feeling in the world. And I I remember being with somebody, a friend of mine, hopefully he'll never listen to this. We went to Greece. I'd been to Greece before and he was petrified and anxious the whole way. Where are we going to stay? Where are we going to stay? And I said, listen, we're going to get off the boat on the island and we are going to be swarmed by people offering us a place to stay. The stress will be deciding which one of those people that we go with, which one looks the best. But what if it's a full? What if we, shouldn't we book? And I said, can you, we just stop for a minute? And on the way back from Greece, he said to me, oh, I don't think I was very fun the first couple of days because I was so anxious. And you're <laughs> right. We got there. We were sworn. We had the best time not having a clue where we were going to stay, but it wasn't for lack of choice. I thought, yeah, yes. I so know. sometimes you kind of have to pull people kicking and screaming into that kind of an environment before they let go and, and truly enjoy it for what it is. Yeah, you're you're right. You know, it's like the thing when you are somewhere at the dinner party or something and you talk to people and you disagree on something and then they just pick up their phone and Google it. You know, so we, we, we shouldn't do that. You know, we, we are allowed to disagree and, and maybe nobody is right about something that they talk about. Now, um, in this movie that I watched, I have to tell you that I felt really guilty as charged in many, many of the things that were mentioned. We go to places and you were saying something beautiful before you said we go there and we are guests, but not everybody behaves as a guest. Some people behave really badly. Um, Can we educate tourists? Is there a way to um, tell people how they should behave? Well, I think first, just for your listeners, the name of the documentary is called The Last Tourist. Um, and it talks a lot about the impacts of travel over the years and what it has become and then what happened for the pandemic. And the end of the documentary really provides a choice to people that you can be part of the problem and part of, or part of the solution. And I think a lot of people say, oh, we can't, you know, tourists will just behave a particular way. And it brings me back to basically with children, right? When my daughter's friends come over, there are rules. You eat your snack in the kitchen and you do not jump on the sofa. They have a great time, but they don't break my rules and they know their boundaries and, and they, you know, perform within them. And I feel that destinations and the tourism industry is guilty a little bit of not providing those boundaries. We want people and, and it's such a, a fixation on more, 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 more that we forget that people are guests in our house. We have residents, there's quality of life issues and environmental issues that we need to, to consider. And, and instead we're just you know, putting up hotels or asking people to come in or, you know, turning our homes over to Airbnb without the sort of thought through consequences of maybe we need to be telling these people what's acceptable and what's not. Iceland does a very good job. I find they have very funny campaigns. It's called the Iceland Academy, you know, how to take self safe selfies or why to stay on the trails or how to dress properly. And they, and they take the, you know, they, um, they make fun of it a little bit, but in a way, it's very, very true of this is what is not okay and this is what is okay. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think we've probably as an industry gone too far with letting people do whatever they want. And the debauchery and the rudeness and you know the 
defacing public art attack artifacts is is not acceptable. I don't I don't care where you are in the world. There is no country that says actually please push over our statues and be rude to our people. That that's not okay. I agree. And uh, funny enough, I did my previous, not the previous, but the two weeks ago, I uploaded an episode with um, a lawyer from Philadelphia, Dick Atkins, who helps people get out of jail because um, there are countries that have boundaries and that have rules and that have laws and uh, people just don't respect it, uh, these laws sometimes and end up in jail. Yes, that does happen. I mean, I remember um, you can actually, you can Google it now that we're talking that horrible world. <laughs> I, I use it for my students sometimes when we're talking about sustainability. You can Google tourists behaving badly and you absolutely it's shocking the stuff that you can see that people have recorded i'm honestly shocked that people record it rather than stop it happening as well that's sort of a, a separate story but it is really phenomenal what people think they can do which is you know i don't know maybe it's and i don't think you can just blame it on a culture which a lot of people do um but i think there yes there are some people believe that that places are there for their consumption and that's just not no. That's not fair. I wouldn't want someone to do it to me, so I wouldn't want to do it to someone else. Yes, and also these people wouldn't probably wouldn't behave like that in their own country. They just, some some people feel that now that they are maybe looking down at another people or or, or feeling that you know they are not worthy. So um, you know, talking about countries that are poor um, and feeling having this feeling of superiority and believing that they can just do anything they want because they have the money to pay for it. That's true, but I also think the 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 tourism industry has sort of led us on this. You can be hedonistic when you're away, you know, eat what you want, drink what you want, do what you want. And that has also led to very unsustainable behavior. I mean, I've heard people um, say, well, I, you know, I'm providing jobs or I worked hard for this, so I deserve it. And I think, why do you deserve to, to use more water than an entire village does in a day where, you know, I, I don't think anybody deserves to do that. So those kinds of things, I think, have also um, that hedonistic tourist behavior that people don't don't think when they're away is maybe something that we need to focus on too. I would, it's it's almost a past to behave how you want, and that is the very antithesis of responsibility, really. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned water. I mean, water water is a big big thing. I mean, we do we're going to have a water problem at some point in, or, or we already do have a water problem in in on this planet, and um, you know the consumption of water like. Turning off the, the the water while you brush your teeth is not really a big deal, but should we teach children to become responsible travelers? It's it's an interesting question because we just wrote a book about that traveling. It's called "Are We There Yet?" Which any parent or grandparent will be well familiar with that phrase. I know that phrase <laughs> exactly. But traveling more responsibly with your children, I sometimes think that maybe you know everybody says it, the children are our future. But actually, we as parents may not do it for ourselves, but we'll do it for our children. Or as grandparents, we may not do it, but we do it for our grandchildren. And so that was the premise of, of the book is I just felt we weren't moving the needle in the ways we were trying to do things currently. And so myself and um, my colleague, who used to actually be my PhD supervisor, so he's just this amazing, very, very eloquent man, uh, came on board on my journey, I said, how about we write, how about we try to write a book for the mainstream? So we write a lot of academic things. Um, and any listener will know, they'll say nobody reads academic work, which is often true apart from academics. But so we tried to write a book for the mainstream for that very purpose to say, what are really easy, practical, positive ways to make a difference? Because shaming and blaming isn't working. Um, the climate change movement has become extremely negative. 
And a lot of people are putting their head in the sand and hoping it'll go away. So rather than, you know, rather than blame and shame, we wanted to put a, just a lot of knowledge in one place in an easy, accessible, um, positive way to say, you know, maybe you just try and change one thing. And, and maybe some part of it is awareness, but part of it is feeling proud. But really, if you see your kids happy, then you're happy. And that's what it boils down to at the end of the day. So the book is called Are We There Yet? <laughs> it, is a, it is a phrase that we've all heard before. I've got two yeah, kids. It's called Are We There Yet Traveling More. <laughs> yeah, Are We There Yet Traveling More Responsibly With Your Children? And we are going to put the link uh, to order this book in the show notes because um, we have to start somewhere. Of course, lots of, and as you say, blaming, we can, there's always, some people just need somebody to blame. But um, I think responsibility in life in general, but also while we travel is very, very important. I noted a few words over tourism. For the people who are listening to us, Personally, I do not, I have a vague idea. Of course, I I know more or less what it means, but would you be able to explain over tourism in, in, uh, in a short way, in an easy way? Sure. We wrote a book on that too, but no one will ever (laughs) read it because it was an academic one. Um, (laughs) uh, So in, in really easy layman's terms, over tourism is where a destination gets too many people at once that is overwhelming the destination. So it doesn't have to be a city. It it can be Mount Everest. It could be a national park. It could be a beach. But when there are too many people that are overusing the resources and causing chaos or causing resentment in the the resident population or causing crowding and and congestion, all those things, is it's like a one big perfect storm is over tourism. So a lot of people say, oh, it's just when there's lots of crowds. Well, no, because lots of places can handle crowds. Lots of beaches can be crowded and still completely function well. Cities can be crowded and function well. When the place can no longer function because of too many tourists in one place, that is what's considered over tourism. And that's happening. Most people will see on the news, you know, pictures of Venice, or they'll see the lineup along waiting to go up Mount Everest, or they'll see, you know, a lineup in a national park with thousands and thousands of people trying to go somewhere. Those kinds of issues, when there's just too many places the destination can no longer cope, that's when we have a real problem. And on the flip side, we have places that need more tourists. We have under-tourism in Yeah, some that's what, that was going to be my next question. But about over-tourism, I think I read recently somewhere that they are not issuing any more permits to hike to Machu Picchu this year. I think it's, you know, it, it, it's uh, there is a certain amount and that's it because they needed to control it. Yeah. Uh, one place I think that's closer to you that's done a very good job is the Cinque Terre in Italy. You yeah. used to be able to, when I was there in 2005, you could just walk from, it's a place that you either walk or take the train from town to town. There's five towns and no roads, which is lovely, but they got to the stage that it was so beautiful and so fun that more and more people went and it was just overwhelmed. So now they cap the now, the number of passes. They um, put in a lot of, of measures and checks to make sure that too many people don't come. And the very reason was, is they realized that they were ruining the very resource that people were coming to visit. So what about under tourism? Well, some places, you know, need tourism. So I, you know, it's an interesting thing. Tourism has, sometimes has a bad rap. When we fly anywhere, we create carbon emissions and that's negative for the environment. And we can cause a huge rift in the local population and we can be very disrespectful. And there's lots of things that can be bad associated to tourism. But we need to not forget that tourism can really be a force for good, right? It really does create a lot of local employment. It can very much be an empowerment tool for women and for youth. It can be a really great way to 
to raise protection and awareness of the environment. And a lot of times it has been tourism that has started conservation areas to be formed or um, raised awareness with politicians of things to be done. So tourism can really be a force for good. And a lot of destinations in COVID, for example, really, really fell because there were no tourists. So communities that were dependent on the tourists from the travel trade for tour operators going through, for example, all those places near Machu Picchu that had nothing and tourism really helped them sell their handicrafts and revitalize their culture. COVID came and all of a sudden they had absolutely nothing for two years and it decimated them. So I think we need to be cautious when people say tourism is bad, that tourism can be a great force for good. It just needs to be done better. Yeah. And that's when we come to the next uh, expression that I've uh, written down and that's responsible tourism. And I think when we are um, responsible tourists and good tourists and we we, we uh, respect the place that we go to, what is your take on responsible tourism? I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. In, in the academic space, and I think just in general, is people love to come up with different terms to explain the same thing. And it has been a bit of our downfall. You know, we, we started with ecotourism, but that was just to tourism in natural areas in small groups. And But governments said, oh, I want everything to be ecotourism. Well, that wasn't very good because then we had the issue of, of almost overrunning our national parks. And then we moved to slow tourism. We need to spend longer times in places and really just slow down and enjoy things. Well, that's great, but that doesn't really work if you're a business traveler or you're, you know, city breaks, things like that. So we've had lots of words. We've had sustainable. Now we're on the newest word is, is rejuvenative or regenerative tourism, that it has to regenerate a place, which is also complicated when you've got a three-star rundown hotel on a beach. There's nothing really regenerative about that. Uh, and sustainable has been the overall catching word, but it's confusing because people say, oh, I need to sustain my lifestyle or I need to sustain my finances. So responsibility, I think, comes down to the more personal piece. I often use the word sustainability, but when we're talking about travel, a destination has to do their part and they have to be responsible to set the guidelines and make sure that they take care of the destination. And the tour operators need to make sure that they tell people what's responsible behavior. But as travelers ourselves, we have a responsibility. We know what's good for our kids. We know what's good for us. And I think cognitively, we do know if you're in a, if you're using 1800 liters of water per day in a, in a water scarce region, that's just not responsible. And, and there's no other really way to put it, that we have a choice when we travel, that we can either be part of the problem and be, or be part of the solution. Yeah, that's very beautifully said. And now global warming. I saw I, when I was going through your website, there was, I think it's a paper or a study or something you did about the Maldives, because there are islands from what I understand, not just in the Maldives, but in, the, in, in many other places in the world that will eventually, it's the rising of the water and um, becoming a, a real issue, like taking away people's livelihood. Well, it's so interesting that I think there's a paradox in tourism and that we we promote the very places that we need to protect. And if you look at the tourism industry, the places that people go are the ski resorts where the snow is melting due to climate change and therefore there will be no more skiing. It is the beaches where sea level is rising and there will be no more beach or that hurricanes are hitting due to climate change or increased strange weather patterns that all of a sudden one day there's a beautiful beach that attracts all the tourists and the very next day the beach is gone. You know, we we go to hot places because we search for summer sun, those of us from the northern climates, and all of a sudden that temperature is changing. Or we go north because we want to engage in winter tourism, those 
climates are changing. Climate change overall is affecting us in every step of the word in tourism. And so it always amazes me that that our industry doesn't do more to try and counteract it because we really, truly are trying to promote the very places that we need to protect. Why doesn't our industry do more? To be fair, I should have um, caught myself on that. There's some players that are doing really amazing work. But I think overall, there's there's a lot of talk and there's a few people who are doing really amazing things and actions, but it's I think it's probably the same as human behavior. It's it's hard to make changes and, and human beings don't like change, just like businesses don't like change. So we have, we have a ways to go. I feel like it's becoming more prevalent these days and there's more interest. It's a dinner party conversation now, but I also have heard that people are just overwhelmed, uh, which is another reason why we wrote the book is we just wanted to give people easy, practical solutions because I think people may be concerned about something, but they also have their life and and their families and their jobs. And it's one more thing. It's kind of mm-hmm. like if you're at work and your boss gives you one more thing, you just, you know, sometimes you just skirt it and don't do it because you're just overwhelmed. And I feel like we need to, we need to deal with that, that we need to encourage people to come along on the journey rather than assume or expect that people will do it voluntarily. Yeah. And I think as, as you, you know, you said what's written in your book, some things we know, but sometimes we just need to hear them again and we need to hear how important it is that we do them. It, it may not even be such a big deal, but it could make a big difference. It could make a big difference. And I heard a great expression the other day that said, just because something is common sense doesn't mean it's common practice, Absolutely. which I thought was very, very true. Yes, yes. And and uh, it's I see this in many, like also some, because I'm, I'm also an, um, a life coach and I, I do a little bit of motivational speaking. And I always tell the people all the stuff that I'm going to tell you now, you know, you know this. But once in a while, somebody needs to tell it to you again and somebody needs to remind you of things because, you know, as you said, we're human and and sometimes we're a little lazy as well. You know, sometimes one or two of those things that we should do would make our life a little bit, a tiny bit harder so we don't do them. Yeah, well, that's a good word. The word should, I find, um, perhaps needs to be removed from everybody's everybody's nomenclature. We'd be doing a bit better. Yes. Now, coming back to Rachel Dodds. I will ask you a stupid question that many people ask me all the time because I've traveled a lot. What is your favorite place in the world? I have many, but I have to say that one of my favorite places is my cabin, a cabin on the Gulf in the Gulf Islands, which is on the west uh, coast of Canada. And I go there and I completely switch off. So it's off grid, completely off grid. There's no running water. There's no electricity. There's no roads right on the water. It's just you and nature and the ocean. And it's probably one of my most magical places in the world. How long do you manage to stay? I mean, never long enough. <laughs> never long enough. Do you, uh, but you, I was, you uh, could stay more. You don't feel that you need to get back on the grid. You leave because you have to, because you have obligations, not because you uh, want to. Yes. And the funny thing is, is I am very, very um, strict with everybody who comes that when we get on that boat taxi, because we don't have a boat, technology must be turned off. And you have the opportunity to turn on once a day to just see that, you know, the world hasn't fallen, but, uh, but that's it. But I am just as guilty as everyone else. When I go back on, onto the next Island and wait for the ferry, the first thing I do is, is check my millions of emails. So I, I know that's what I'm like. And so that, I think that's probably why it's one of my favorite places because I forced myself and I've convinced people now for 20 years that I'm going off grid. They really can't reach me. And it's the one place I find that 
after a couple of days of the anxiety of phones or screens, I do just, you know, I enjoy my fresh vegetables and I enjoy my beautiful glass of wine, looking at the sunset or the sunrise. I, I enjoy going for walks. I enjoy the smell of the forest. I just, I enjoy being, I think, with what nature created the world for rather than what we have tried to change it to be for us. Yeah, it's the little things, isn't it? It's it's learning to appreciate a glass of wine or, or, or a beautiful sunset. I think we tend to not pay enough attention to that very often. But I have to say, I also totally love Japan. I have to say of all the countries I've been to, Japan is one place that hasn't tried to be a different destination. I feel like a lot of places... If you close your eyes, you could be anywhere. They've just mm-hmm. copycatted. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we went from from everybody having to have a golf course to everyone having to have a spa to everyone mm-hmm. having to have an amusement center. It, it was just every destination just became like every other destination, which made me sad. And now it doesn't matter pretty much where you go in the world. You'll find the same shops, the same coffee shops, the same restaurants. And I search and crave for the independent and the things that aren't um that aren't common and when you go to japan they make no pretense they're just japanese they don't want to be anybody else and there's lots of things that are just very oddly japanese and i loved it i love the food i love the the people i love the fact that you see eight-year-old children walking down the street at nine o'clock at night with no fear because it's so safe there those kinds of things i thought were just astounding and I did eat some very strange things. Uh, my partner and I had a hilarious thing saying, well, I'll try the green squishy thing if you try the red furry thing. That, that's kind of how it went. Without really knowing what it is. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, I think that sounds like a lot of fun. I don't know Japan very well, but uh, I, I have a, a big desire to go to Japan. And I, I, I'd actually like love to ski in Japan because I'm, I was born in Switzerland. So I love to ski and I love snow. And apparently it's some of the best snow in the world. But we can dream. We can still keep on dreaming. Now, I, I think it keeps thoughts. people alive, to be fair, when you say that. Sorry to interrupt. I just, when, when you hear... All of a sudden, when you started to talk about how excited you were to go something somewhere, I feel that um, when people love to travel, that excitement and and um, exuberance that comes through in their voice is something that is what's so appealing and addictive. It's almost as exciting to plan your next trip as it is to go on the trip. I think it starts from the moment you start thinking about it. Uh, until you actually get on the plane or on the train or wherever you go. So we are already coming towards the end. I want to, I want people to read your book, but I also want you to, if you can, give two, three things that make a big difference. We've mentioned water. What else can we do when we travel? What else can we be more aware of? To um, Well, one thing is pack lighter. Um, Most people overpack they bring, you know, their whole house plus the kitchen sink. Now, and there's a an old saying that says, put everything that you want to take on your bed, cut it in half and cut it in half again, because usually you can find something again. I just said to a, a friend of mine who was traveling, I said, I don't bring anything unless I can use it at least three times. Um, so I think that's one thing. But number one, it saves you time. Number one, I try and travel everywhere, carry on if I can, unless I'm going for a really long time. It also saves carbon because it's less weight in the planes and the trains and the buses and everything else. And it saves you hassle because it's less to to carry around. So I feel sometimes the responsible choices also make your life better. I would also say, uh, eat, try and eat in a local restaurant and eat local food. 
not only are you, again, are you cutting your carbon emissions and are you supporting the local economy, but 90% of the time the food tastes better and you get to meet some local people and see what's really going on. And uh, even when you're going somewhere and you want a souvenir, make sure that souvenir is not made in China and brought in. Make sure it's it's made and and sold locally so that money is actually staying in the local economy. Because if you're just buying and staying in foreign-owned places, you're actually part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And I know it's not always possible, but a tiny bit of research or one choice is the key thing. And I think that's probably the best thing. You can't possibly do everything if you're traveling for work or you've got families or you've got issues, but you can change one thing. And if you change one thing, then maybe next time it's two things and feel proud of that one thing that you changed. Um, And my final thing, I guess, is uh, actually there's thousands, but I would say one thing we have, and this comes from the movie and the proceeds actually the majority of the profit from the book is going to world animal protection. Those stakeholders, I would say, the animals don't have a voice. So if you think that it's okay to pet, swim, or touch a wild animal, remember that wild animals are wild and they don't have the choice to be there. So likely they've been drugged, captured, mm-hmm. or some other horrifying thing. And even though we're all animal lovers, no, those we can make really easy decisions to just make a better choice And it's not going to be a worse experience. It's probably going to be a better experience at the end of the day. Beautiful, beautiful. I have to say, I was, when I was watching The Last Tourist, I actually had to close my eyes when they were showing how like those elephants were beaten, are are being beaten into obedience. It's dreadful, absolutely dreadful. But you know what? I've, I rode an elephant when I was in Thailand because I didn't know. I honestly had no idea. And when I found out, I was horrified that I had been part of the problem. But then I think if you do, if you do it again, you're perpetuating, you know, once a once a fool, twice a something, rather they say. I actually there's too many, I'm, I'm I'm commandeering too many phrases, which is why I'm starting to get them wrong now. But those kinds of things, you know, if you don't know, you don't know, but make an effort to find out. Yeah. And if somebody, there's a lot of information out there of of encouraging ways to do better. And that's what we need to do. And when you're if you're doing everything that that you've heard us talk about, then convince one of your friends to do it. Beautiful, beautiful. It's so true. There are many things that I, it, it really made me think. And there are many things that I didn't know, but now I do. So now mm. once you do, you can't unknow. So that's when you have to apply right. and you have to become part of the solution, as you say. Right. And we definitely also vote with our wallet. So a lot of people think, well, I can't do anything. It's the government's responsibility, et cetera. But as, as travelers, or if you're a tourist, you vote with your wallet, which then also impacts policy, it impacts governance, it impacts business, it impacts all the way up the chain of, of command and power. And those kinds of things are things that I don't think we think about. We have a choice on where we decide to go. We have a choice on what we decide to buy and we have a choice on what we decide to do. Absolutely true. I think those were very wise last words. Thank you so much for being on, for spending time with me, for getting up early for me and for being on most memorable journeys. Thank you, Rachel. It was great to chat about travel, honestly. I feel like um, it's such a, it's such an engaging way to start the day. So thank you. Fantastic. If you enjoy my podcast, please like, share and subscribe to my channel. You will find all the information in the show notes.